Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Late at night on June 27th, 2005, four Navy SEALs crawled under the darkness of night for a reconnaissance mission in the mountainous region between Afghanistan and the Pakistani border. It was called Operation Red Wing, and it was led by SEAL Team 10, and their goal was to get surveillance intelligence on the activity of an al-Qaeda leader with strong ties to Osama bin Laden. Well, goat herders soon discovered the team, and being civilians, they were basically let go due to the operations and protocol during that time of, of rules of engagement. But within a few hours, what had happened was this SEAL reconnaissance team was ambushed by a group of around 20 to 30 men led by a local Taliban warlord named Ahmad Shah. And so the SEAL team was outnumbered. They were under heavy fire. They could not establish consistent communication to call for help. And three of the four members were killed while the lone survivor, Marcus Luttrell, was left unconscious. He was heavily wounded. He had to crawl for miles through the mountains. He, he was eventually helped by local villagers that risked their lives to keep him alive from the, and safe from the surrounding Taliban warriors. Now, Luttrell wrote a best-selling book called Lone Survivor. It was chronicling the largest loss of life in Navy SEAL history. This was a reconnaissance mission that went bad and ended in tragedy. But what happens when a reconnaissance mission goes well, when intelligence is gathered, there's no loss of life, Everything looks good for the taking. What happens when the majority rejects a really good idea? It's interesting how many famous people have experienced rejection in their lives and then later went on to do amazing things. For example, a newspaper editor fired Walt Disney early in his career because he lacked imagination and had no good ideas. After that, he started a number of businesses that didn't last long, and basically Walt Disney ended in bankruptcy and failure early in his career. Major setbacks. But then we know Disney. He became one of the most famous names in the entertainment industry, and his legacy lives on today. Or think about Albert Einstein. He couldn't speak until he was four years old. He couldn't read until he was seven. His teachers, his parents thought he was mentally challenged. Eventually, he was expelled from school. He wasn't even uh, allowed to go to the Zurich Polytechnical Institute. He suffered rejection, but later became one of the most famous scientists of all time. Reconnaissance and rejection. Now, why do I bring these two words up? We see these two issues tragically illustrated for us in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 13 and 14 with the nation of Israel. Now, let me just set the historical context for you regarding where Numbers shows up in the Bible. If you remember the story, the nation of Israel had received the Ten Commandments at the base of Mount Sinai. The Lord commands the people to get ready to go enter the promised land. 
So they take a, a small journey through the desert, and they eventually end up at a place called Kadesh Barnea. And they're poised, they're ready. They're ready to go on a reconnaissance mission to send in these spies to gather surveillance intelligence into the promised land. But leading up to this event, this pivotal event in the nation's history, the the nation of Israel undergoes three rebellions that emerge in chapters 11 and 12 leading up to chapters 13 and 14. If you go back and read Numbers 11, the people grumble. They complain about Moses' leadership. They complain that we don't have any meat here. Let's go back to Egypt. They just want to go back to Egypt. And and God's anger really kindles against them. And he burns down fire in the camp, consuming some of the outlying parts of the camp. God is angry. And Moses is really bothered. Moses is is really bothered by this rebellious people that really Moses kind of gets depressed and says, God, just kill me. Just kill me and get this over with and and let me not deal with this anymore. Then in chapter 11, we see a rejection of leadership. That's what we see in chapter 11, a rejection of Moses' leadership. Numbers chapter 12, Aaron and Miriam, Moses' brother and sister, they oppose Moses because of his Cushite wife somewhat of racism going on here, jealousy. They're, they're bothered that Moses is the key leader whom God has appointed. Uh, they're wondering, why is he getting all the attention and we're not? So his closest relatives, his brother and sister, again, display a rejection of leadership. And as a result, Miriam is struck with leprosy. And they have to wait seven days before they can move forward. So these two chapters clearly show the people rejecting leadership. Three rebellions. First by the people, then by Aaron, then by Miriam. And now we come to chapter 13 where we see the epitome of rejection and rebellion as the people not only reject leadership, but they reject the land. And ultimately, they reject their Lord. Chapters 11 and 12 are the buildup to the climax of rebellion we see in chapters 13 and 14. Rejection and rebellion. These are frightening responses to the living God. God had saved them by grace in the Exodus. They had plundered the Egyptians. He provided for their every need with the manna and the quail and the water. He'd given them his law. And so we've got to ask the question, how in the world will these rebellious, stubborn Israelites ever learn their lesson? Which leads to an even greater question. Just how serious is rebellion against the living God? Very serious. It leads me to the big idea, the central theme, the overarching concept teaching that we see in numbers chapters 13 and 14 now numbers 13 and 14 really should be taken as one unified narrative here's the big idea god's wrath against rebellion can only be satisfied by the forgiveness of a mediator god's wrath against rebellion can only be satisfied by the forgiveness of a mediator 
In this narrative about the 12 spies, we see God's wrath. We see rebellion. But we also see a mediator. But let's dive into this more specifically and see how these two chapters reveal the climax of this rebellion. We really see this story unfold in five major scenes, if you will. Five major movements. First of all, in chapters 13, 1 through 24, the first thing we see is the reconnaissance. The reconnaissance itself. The Lord gives specific directions to Moses to undertake a recon mission with the 12 spies from each of the 12 tribes. The key word that shows up in these verses is the word spy. Go spy on the land. They, these men were not to march into the promised land and announce that the Israelites had arrived. They were to gather surveillance. They were to go on a recon mission. They were to get the lay of the land. Was the land good? Was the land bad? Were the cities fortified with walls? Did, did the people live in tents or did they live in fortified cities? Was the land good? Was the land bad? What about the agriculture? Were there fruit-bearing trees? It was grape season during that time, and so they would need to bring back some physical evidence as to the fertility of the land. And Moses sends out these spies on the recon mission, and then in chapter 13, verse 20, he says, Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. This encouragement would help them, but yet it would be a harbinger of what was to come. Be courageous. So they go and they spy out the land, these 12 spies. And what they find there are the descendants of Anak, possibly this, this race of, of giants, literally giants in the land. But they also find these giant grapes that they cut down from the valley of Eshkol. And so you have the literal giants in the land, and then you have these giant grapes. And so there, there's irony here in the storytelling. There, there's human giants, but they're also fruit giants. So which one would win out in the minds of the people? Would they see the human giants and be fearful and, and be afraid? Or would they see the quote-unquote fruit giants and be hopeful that God had given them a fertile land? So this narrative section ends with some tension. With some tension. There seems to be an air of excitement. There seems to be an air of, of hope because they've got this huge cluster of grapes. But yet there's also hesitancy because they've seen the giants in the land. So which attitude would win out in the end? Fear or hope? Uncertainty or assurance, doubt, or faith, obedience, or rebellion. And so for a moment here in the narrative as readers, we're kind of left hanging in the balance of what happens. They've gone and, they, and there's the tension. We see giants in the land, but we have this giant fruit. So the land is good. The land is flowing with milk and honey. The land is fertile. The land is ripe for the taking. But yet there are giants in the land. So the first section of this narrative the first movement is the the reconnaissance the recon mission itself but let's look at the second section the report we see this in chapters 13 25 through 33 let's pick it up in verse 25 at the end of 40 days they returned from spying out the land 
And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height, And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. So this is the report that this reconnaissance mission lasted 40 days. It would have given them enough time to gather the intelligence they needed to find out what they were truly up against. And so we left the first scene with tension. What would win out in their minds? The giant fruit or the giant people. And so they, they come back to Moses, and they're kind of excited. They begin with the excitement. Man, the fruit is huge. The land is fertile. It's flowing with milk and honey. Everything looks great. So far, so good. And so, but then they say, however, there's fortified cities, and there's giants in the land, and there's Canaanites scattered throughout the region. We're afraid. We, we can't do it. And then Caleb, the strong man that he is, silences the crowd and he gives this strong voice of hope and and we see in verse 30 what does he say let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it he's a brave man he has faith in the living god there's an urgency there's a call to action he he says come on guys this land is ripe for the taking god is on our side Be, be strong and courageous let's do this there's an urgency let's do it now god has given us the land but the people respond with a bad report and we see a play on words here the people brought a bad report it says the people bought brought a bad report verse 32 so they brought to the people of israel a bad report of the land play on words here it's a bad report about a land that was good Good land, bad report. It's a good land. It's flowing with milk and honey. Giant grapes, fertile. Everything that you saw about the land itself was good. It was ripe for the taking. Yet the people did not see the land as good, but a land that devours its inhabitants. And so the tension that we had in that cliffhanger in the first section, we're, we're wondering, are they going to come back with fear? Are they going to come back with hope? It really comes to fruition here because fear wins out over hope. The giants in the land are more powerful in their minds than the giant fruit in the good land. The land that is good has now become bad in their minds as the people bring a bad report. So in the first movement, we've seen the reconnaissance. 
And in the second movement, we've seen the report. Now let's come to the third section, which is probably the most important section in this chapter, these two chapters, because it's, it really shows us the climax. Everything's been building to it. And here's the third section. It's the rebellion. Number one, reconnaissance. Number two, the report. Number three, the rebellion. We see this in chapters 14, 1 through 10. So let's read that. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephthah, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred to us their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us do not fear them then all the congregation said to stone them with stones it's amazing what happens here I mean the congregation responds in agony they're weeping, they're crying, they're, they're bemoaning, and they grumble against Moses and Aaron. As a matter of fact, the word grumble is a key word. It shows up five times in this narrative. The, the author Moses, who wrote Numbers, wants us to key in on that word grumble. It's central to the story, to grumble, to, to murmur, to complain. In verses 1 and 2, we, we see the, the demonstrative outcry of the people. They're, they're weeping all night. They're crying. They're grumbling. This is not just like throwing up their hands and shrugging their shoulders, saying, well, oh, well, maybe, maybe another day. Now, this is desperation. This is fear. This is anguish. The people are feeling helpless. They, in their minds, we've left everything in Egypt. At least we had food in Egypt. We may have been slaves, but at least we had food, we had homes, we were protected. But now we've had to follow this man, Moses, whoever he is, through this wilderness. And now they're on the brink of taking the promised land, the land that God had promised way back to Abraham. And and what are they feeling now? They're defeated. They're hopeless. But most of all, they're faithless. They're faithless. It would be better for us just to go back to Egypt. I mean, they've lost memory. Had not the Lord taken care of their every need in the desert? Had they not been spared the angel of death at Passover? Had they not plundered the Egyptians? Had they not crossed the Red Sea on dry land? Had they not received the daily meal of manna and the quail? Had not God performed wonders in their midst? Had they such a short memory? had fear and doubt and a lack of faith brought them to the point where they're, they're not only rejecting their leader because they're like, let's just find a new leader. 
and then they're, they're rejecting the land. Let's not go into the land. Let's go back to Egypt. So they're not only rejecting their leader, Moses, they're not only rejecting the land, but ultimately they're rejecting their Lord. This was a full-scale rejection of both leader, land, and Lord. It's interesting that while Moses and Aaron are falling on their faces, Joshua and Caleb, Joshua especially, emerges as, as a voice to encourage the people. And this would be a foreshadowing of Joshua's leadership in the book of Joshua where he would actually lead that next generation to occupy the land. But, but he issues a very stark warning in verse 9. What does he say? Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread to us. Now, at this moment, Joshua and Caleb, they're, they're, they're not official prophets, but they emerge as a prophetic voice to call the people to repentance, to rebuke them, to, to warn them against outright right rebellion. You see, the people are in the midst of fear. They're in the midst of doubt and discouragement. And during those times, what God often does is he raises up a prophetic voice to call his people back to repentance and to warn them of impending judgment. And God does that through preaching. He may be doing that today. If you hear my voice and you're rebelling against the Lord, God sends preachers to, to warn us not to rebel, not to harden our hearts. And God almost always gives a warning to his people before he acts in wrath. God is patient. God is long-suffering. We see a few instances in the Old Testament where it was immediate punishment. But for the most part, God extends extreme mercy extreme patience. If you go back and read the Old Testament, you're offering wondering why God is, is not pouring out his wrath sooner. He's so patient with the Israelites and he sends messengers, prophets, to warn his people. And so Joshua here, Joshua and Caleb, as they're, as they're warning the people, it's really an act of God's grace. God in his grace is sending a message to them to repent. There's still time. There's still hope. Don't rebel. It's an act of grace. But what do the people do? It's amazing. The people want to stone them. The people want to pick up stones and stone them. That's radical. That, that's a twist that we're not really expecting in this story. Now, we might expect the people to continue complaining. Maybe go back to their tents and have a hissy fit. Maybe complain for a little while, but to pick up stones and want to murder their leadership? I mean, that's the epitome of rebellion. So remember, what was brewing back in chapter 11 with the grumbling? And what was brewing back in chapter 12 with Aaron and Miriam? Now, in chapter 14, has erupted has exploded into a full-fledged climax of rebellion. This is the most important part of the narrative, the rebellion. Moses wants us to have a close, laser-sharp focus on this to see the people rebelling in light of a warning from Joshua and Caleb not to rebel. So what have we seen so far in these movements in these parts of the story. Number one, we've seen the reconnaissance itself. Number two, we've seen the report. Number three, we've seen the rebellion. Now what's the fourth part? It comes in chapter 14, verses 10 through 
38, it's the response. The response. Now, not the people's response, because we've already seen that. But we see Moses' response as the leader, and ultimately, God's response. Let's pick up at the end of verse 10. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you have brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land, They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please, let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. God's Shekinah glory appears at the tabernacle and he speaks to Moses. And in verse 11, we find out a key word that's used to to describe how the people have rebelled against God. In verse 11, how long will this people despise me? Despise me. The people are hating the living God. I mean, the word despise here is really in a verbal form in the Hebrew language that brings intensity to its meaning, to spurn, to reject, to discard. What God's saying is this people has rejected me and not just rejected me in a small way, but rejected me in a very strong way. Isaiah uses the same word in Isaiah 1.4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they are utterly estranged. I mean, this is not some half-hearted, casual ignorance of God's law. What this is, is a settled, intense, hateful rebellion of the living God. And it's expressed in violence against their leadership. They want to kill leadership. And so to reject the leaders, to reject the land, is ultimately to reject the Lord. So what does God want to do? God wants to destroy them and start over. God says to Moses, let's just destroy these people. We'll start over. I'll keep you alive. And as the living God of absolute holiness, I mean, he's, he's wrathful. His wrath is kindled against this rebellious people. So let's go back to what I said was the central teaching of this entire passage. God's wrath against rebellion can only be satisfied by the forgiveness of a mediator. Now what happens next is surprising. But we see it time and time again with Moses. What does Moses do here? He emerges as the loving mediator between the rebellious people and the holy God of Israel. 
He, he reminds God of his fame and his power. He reminds God of the Exodus and how he had sworn a covenant to give the people the land. Not like God needed this information, but, but Moses is in an act worshiping God and saying, God, you're a powerful God. God, you've sworn your love to us. God, you can't destroy these people. You've made a covenant. You're a powerful God. And, and then, then Moses really reminds God of what God had sworn to him back in Exodus 34. When, when, when in Exodus 34, when, when Moses wanted to see the glory of God and God says, you can't see my glory and live, I'll, I'll let you see my backside glory. So God put him in the cleft of the rock. And we, we find out in Exodus 34 that, that, that God is... is loving and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love and slow to anger. It's kind of the, the John 3.16, if you will, of the, of the Old Testament about the character and nature of God repeated throughout the Old Testament. In the midst of God's wrath here, we cannot escape the fact that Scripture also speaks of His amazing love. And the imagery here is used, some of the most wonderful imagery used in the Old Testament. Moses says here in verse 18, the Lord is slow to anger. Slow to anger literally means that God is long-suffering. God is patient and, and snorting His nose in anger. God doesn't immediately execute justice. He's patient. He's have a, he has a high threshold of tolerance for our disobedience. Then Moses says, The Lord is abounding in steadfast love. We, we've known this word. We've seen this word over and over again in our study of the Old Testament. It's probably the most important word in this passage. Hesed. Hesed. It's God's tenacious fidelity his resolve, his commitment to maintain a relationship with sinful people. It means that God obligates himself. God swears upon himself that he will be true to his covenant. He will promise to love his chosen people to the end. He doesn't break his promises. Then Moses says, you're a loving, a forgiving God. You you forgive iniquity and transgression. He tosses our sin and our rebellious actions to the bottom of the sea. Our sins are forgiven as far as east meets west. And yet, in the midst of this, God has to punish the guilty. Notice what it says. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the third and fourth generation. God is a God of justice. God is a God of holiness, cannot clear guilty sinners from their iniquity. He can't just brush it under the carpet. He can't just wink at sin. He has to deal with it. And so what does Moses do? In verse 19, Moses is again acting as a mediator. Moses is a mediator. He's appealing to God's mercy. Look at verse 19. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Moses is pleading with God, God, forgive these people. I know they've rebelled. I know that they're cantankerous and they're grumbling and they're rejecting the land. But please, according to your great mercy, Forgive them. Forgive them. Moses cannot appeal to the intrinsic worth of the people because they're sinful. He can't say to God, look, these people are so good, God. They deserve, they deserve your love. He can't do that. It's the same with us. We can't appeal to our righteousness. We can't appeal to our intrinsic goodness or worth. We can't say, God, somehow you're obligated to show us mercy because we're so good. The only thing that we can do as sinners, and the only thing Moses does here is appeal to the mercy of a sovereign God who can show sovereign grace. God, our only hope is for you to show sovereign grace. Now, what happens next in the story is that God does pardon them partly. I mean, God forgives them by not executing immediate judgment on them. That They're not all immediately wiped off. But sadly, they do experience His wrath. 
Because what God goes on to say is that they're not going to enter the promised land. This generation will not enter the promised land. They will die in the desert. They will be known as the generation of rebellion and disobedience. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I have sworn to give to their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land which we went and his descendants shall possess it. And none of those who despised me shall see it. Again, the Lord repeats that term, despised, showing again that the nation has utterly rejected him. But there's a, an exception, Joshua and Caleb. Now, it doesn't mention Joshua here, but we know Joshua and Caleb go in. But, but Caleb had a different spirit, a spirit of obedience, a spirit of faith, trust in the living God. He, he didn't have a spirit of fear or rebellion or wickedness. And these people begin to grumble. And so what God does, if you continue reading the story, is he punishes them with 40 years of wandering. They're going to wander for 40 years. They're going to suffer for their faithlessness. And they're going to die in the wilderness, not entering the promised land. Now, this is God's wrath. Not immediate wrath, but wrath nonetheless. Because the people are disobedient. The people don't repent. The people are wicked. And God shows his displeasure in them by causing them to suffer and die in the wilderness. And God has spoken his judgment. And all the people can do is accept the just sentence from the hand of a sovereign God who's made his ruling. God has made his ruling. He goes on to say that they will be dying in the wilderness. And then in verse 39... When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. They mourned. They did not repent. They did not say, hey, let's go take the land. What they did was they continued to rebel. And so what we see in this final section is very, very interesting. Okay, we've seen the reconnaissance. We've seen the report We've seen the rebellion. We've seen the response by Moses and by God. Now, finally, and surprisingly, the last thing we see is the retreat. Verse 40. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when, what, when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you've turned your back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presume to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. Instead of mourning with godly sorrow, 
Instead of repentance, they really sealed their fate. And this is a bewildered move of, of, of impetuous frenzy, really. They decide to just disregard everything they've heard, and let's just go try to, to occupy the land that God had just forbidden them to enter. And so they're about to march in in impatience and arrogance, and, and Moses, again, is the mediator. Moses, the leader, warns them. Moses says, guys, God is not with you. You've rebelled. You've lost it. You're, you've failed miserably, and you are going to fail miserably. You're going to be struck down by your enemies because you've disregarded God's judgment. So, so Moses, again, he, he clearly reminds them of the reality here, the stark reality. What have they done? They've rejected their leader, Moses. They've rejected their land, and ultimately, they've rejected their Lord. They acted in outright rebellion against God, and yet it didn't seem to matter to them. They're so blinded by their own sin, they go ahead and try to capture the land anyway. And the text is very telling in their attitude. Notice what it says in verse 44. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country. They presumed. Even though the Ark of the Covenant wasn't with them, or Moses was with them, this was the height of presumption. The word presumed here in the original Hebrew language is a little bit difficult to translate, but most scholars believe that it means to be heedless, to be reckless, to go up in arrogance, to go up in arrogance. You see, it's interesting, the, the parallel image here. In the first section in the reconnaissance, it's successful. They go spy out the land. They're ready to go in. But in the final section, it's miserable. They don't go in, they retreat. The Amalekites, the Canaanites, defeat them, pursue them. The Israelites run and retreat. And so they're, they're running in rebellion. They're running in, in failure. They've, they've missed the opportunity to enter the promised land. They, they've, they've, they've incurred the judgment and wrath of God. And so Numbers chapter 13 and 14 are really foundational to the entire book as they illustrate how that first generation of Israelites rebelled in wickedness, incurred God's wrath, died in the wilderness, never entering the promised land. But let's think about the big idea again. God's wrath against rebellion can only be satisfied by the forgiveness of a mediator. Now, we can reproach this story in Numbers and look at it and say, this is a great story of the Israelites. It's, it's a story of rebellion. We, we need to to avoid this. It kind of tells us kind of the story of the Israelites. But what does this passage teach us about God's wrath being satisfied through the forgiveness of a mediator today? Is this more than just a morality tale of ancient people that, that kind of gives us a positive model to follow so that we won't be like them? At the end of the day, do we, do we look at the Israelites and, and sit back in our pride and think, well, we, we would never do that. So as we understand this episode in the life of Israel, we do see the extreme danger in rejecting the Lord, in being rebellious, in this whole idea of unrepentant sin. And the only way to escape God's wrath for our rebellion is through the forgiveness of a mediator as well. But the mediator is not the pleadings and the prayers and the intervention of Moses. Moses was the mediator in this story for the nation of Israel. But today, 
Jesus Christ stands as the one mediator between God and man who pardons iniquity. Now, Moses was a type of Christ in that he interceded on the path of the people. He appealed to God's mercy, but Moses in no way could atone for their sins. Moses in no way could be a perfect substitutionary atonement that could cancel God's wrath. All attempts by Moses to be a mediator ultimately really failed for that generation because they, they, they experienced no promised land. And so now Jesus has come. Jesus comes as the ultimate mediator in a way that Moses never could. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, through 6, for there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, the writer of Hebrews gives a commentary on that generation in Hebrews chapter 4. He explains their lack of faith. If you go back and read Hebrews chapter 4, 1 through 6, listen to what it says. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened for we who have believed enter that rest as he has said i swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way and god rested on the seventh day from all his works and again in this passage he said they shall not enter my rest since therefore it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience a little difficult to understand there but what the writer of hebrews is saying here is that wicked generation numbers they receive the good news of the gospel is what he's saying they receive the good news of the gospel but they failed to enter the promised land because of disobedience now he compares the promised land in the old testament to heaven by calling it a rest he says heaven is our rest Just as the promised land was the rest for the nation of Israel, for us as Christians, the true promised land is Christ in heaven where we will have ultimate rest. And so the sin of disobedience, the sin of rebellion, only brings God's wrath where no one can enter the promised land. And for us, what is the promised land? The new heavens and the new earth. And so the only way that God's wrath can be satisfied for sin is through Christ alone as mediator, as our sacrificial substitute. That generation in numbers wandered in the wilderness, died, never entering the promised land rest. And this is a picture of what awaits every person who does not trust in the only mediator, Jesus Christ, to satisfy God's wrath against his or her own personal rebellion. So instead of wandering in the desert like the nation of Israel did and experiencing physical death, it's a whole lot worse today. All those who die in their sins today won't just wander in the desert and just die. They will spend eternity outside of God's promised land, place of rest, in a place of eternal conscious torment called hell. There is no rest in hell. Hell is not the promised land. Listen again to the words from Joshua back in Numbers. He says, do not rebel. Do not despise me. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 7 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
And that's my plea to you this morning. Do not harden your hearts to the living God. Do not reject Him. Do not hold out your fist in rebellion against Him and and arrogantly go in your own direction. You see, the Israelites rejected their leader. They rejected their land and they rejected their Lord. Don't do the same. Don't reject your leader, Jesus Christ. Don't reject your land, a future home, and the new heavens and the new earth. Don't reject your Lord. In Numbers 14, 18, we saw the alarming words from God that he will by no means clear the guilty. God will by no means clear the guilty. And here's the problem. There's a huge problem with that statement for us because we are all guilty. We all deserve condemnation. We all deserve God's wrath against sin. And yet, listen to Moses' words again in verse 14 of chapter four, I mean verse 19 of chapter 14. Moses says, "Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love." May you hear these words today as Jesus is the only one who can pardon your iniquity according to the greatness of his steadfast love. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 7-8, In Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Trust in the only mediator, Jesus Christ, who can pardon your sin, pardon your iniquity, pardon your rebellion, pardon your disobedience, or any other type of sin that you may have committed. Look to the Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, who absorbed God's wrath as the sacrificial substitute, and then who rose again victorious over the grave. Look to Jesus, whose arms are outstretched with steadfast love and forgiveness, and who is willing to embrace any sinner who comes to Him today, right now, in this moment, with brokenness and repentance. Look to Him, who's able to lavish, pour out graciously all of the riches of His grace upon you through His blood shed on the cross. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is interceding for us by His blood as the one mediator. There may be some of you listening that are already Christians You've already trusted in Christ alone for salvation. You've already believed in Jesus Christ as the one mediator to absorb God's wrath in your place, and you've trusted in Christ. You've believed in Him. You're a saved believer. So what challenge is there for you today? You may not have rebelled and rejected and despised God, but maybe, just maybe, you're guilty of grumbling against His provision in your life. Yeah, you're saved, you have a home in heaven, you're secure in your salvation, but your attitude and your passion for Christ right now shows more of a grumbling attitude than adoration and awe. Maybe you're like the Israelites and you're grumbling that things aren't working out the way that you wanted them to. And maybe you've not truly recognized God's wonderful provision in your life and you're acting like a spoiled child in the midst of God's fatherly care for you. Maybe you're mad at God for something outside your control. 
Don't be a grumbler. Philippians 2, 14 through 15, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Christian, if you're listening, you've received your promised land rest in Christ. And one day you will enter that rest, the new heavens and the new earth, and you're secured his grip. But rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross for you and be content. Be joyful. Don't grumble. Be joyful that your sins are forgiven by the mediator, King Jesus, who satisfied God's wrath. Be satisfied that you're accepted by the Father in Christ and that God is for you, not against you. Romans 8, 31 through 32. What then shall we say to these things? God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Praise God today that he did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all so that his wrath against our rebellion would be fully and finally satisfied by the forgiveness of our ultimate mediator, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and honor forever and ever. Amen.